How you doing, lady? Hello, gorgeous. I'm amazing. My life is this goddamn cat now, so. <laughs> that is true. Yes. Well, you already know this, but surprise, it's not a girl. Uh, the vet told me <laughs> was a boy when I was repeatedly referring to it as a girl. And she was like, well, it's not. <laughs> I was like, great. Great. Also, for everyone who's asked for pictures of the cat, Instagram for the last couple of weeks has been very glitchy in that it'll like shut down when I try to post and I'm not able to access my messages, both like on my personal thing and on the show. So if you sent me a message, I'm not ignoring you. I just like, it'll be like, you have this amount of messages and then it won't load the messages. And I've like been on the forums and I've like uninstalled it, reinstalled it. So weird. Yeah. I will post pictures of the cat when Instagram stops being a dick. There are a million pictures of the cat. My fucking so phone cute. is just filled with pictures of this goddamn cat. <laughs> I love this. I love everything about this. Uh, I mean, I'm not mad about it. Everyone else might be annoyed after uh, a couple of weeks when they're like, this bitch will not shut up about this goddamn cat. <laughs> not me. I will never be annoyed. Okay, good. I will never be annoyed. Well, you're getting all the pictures. I love it. It's my favorite. I love it so much. Well, Instagram, get your fucking shit together. Give the people what they want. They need. They want cat pictures. They want Amy's cat. cat pictures. Yes. Get it together, Instagram. What the fuck? Please. So yeah, we're still sort of up in the air on a name, but as I just told Monique, we are leaning towards burrito, burrito, so that I can still call it boo because that was my original suggestion. I think it's amazing. I love it. Which I had totally forgotten was the little girl from Monsters Inc. And then that's yes. why. Yeah. That was what everyone's first reaction was. And I was like, oh, am I Lily Psycho who thought Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird? Okay. <laughs> I'm a nerd. love you. I'm a fucking nerd. I love you so much. <laughs> See, I thought Boo, like the world's most adorable dog, which was the Pomeranian that was like, um, had its hair oh, cut like a little bear. Yes. It was in the Dark Horse video for Katy Perry? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was in I everything. I forgot about that. I loved Boo so much. Like so much. Oh, it, I mean, it was fucking adorable. Yes. I mean, I just thought of Boo like a ghost. I was like, I want to be on theme. Themes on themes. I love it. And we basically played peekaboo the day I found it, trying to get this cat from behind the wheel of the car. So I was like, this seems, this seems applicable on many levels. I think it's wonderful. I know. You were gung-ho about it immediately. Yeah. I was like, that's it. Perfect. No notes. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I thought. So, yeah, I kept trying to suggest names that had Boo in it so I could still get away with calling Boo. Because <laughs> that's, oh that's the kind of uh, sneaky bitch I am. I love you. I love you so much. It's, I can't handle it. I love I love it. you. And I can't wait till we have a cat date and you can come meet Oh, me my God. I'm going to die. Oh, my gosh. I was like, please don't. But, yes, come over. I'm going to get my affairs in order. I'll get my will in order because I'm going to die. <laughs> no. It's pretty cute, but it's not that cute. It's not death cute. <laughs> okay. Maybe my soul will leave my body for a second and then come right back. Okay. Because it's so cute. Okay. As long as it also has the power of resurrection, I'm okay with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go. <laughs> this is a Christ cat. Thank you. A Christ cat. I love it. So what's been up with your week? Oh my God. I've had the craziest week. I've worked a ton, but it was a very performance heavy week Oh, for me, which was a lot of fun. I love it. You're so cultured. Yeah. I try, girl. I saw like four, I saw four shows. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, so many shows. Damn. 
Yum. And then also like worked like every day. I don't even know how I did it. Um, <laughs> I saw the neo-futurists again. I, I saw one of their shows and it was just fucking great. So wonderful. I saw, oh, I saw this um, horror play called Covenant. Oh. It was amazing. It was amazing. Really? Yes. And it like had to deal with like maybe deals with the devil, maybe possession. Like, and it was like set in the south and like a church and and like, and it was in a black box theater. Which for those of you who don't know, black box just means it's like a regular room with like chairs. Like, there's not like a okay. It's not a traditional proscenium stage. So because of that, you can arrange the theater and and where the play areas of the actors to be kind of anywhere you want. Yeah. So basically the set was like all around us and we were like in this like church in the South. It was amazing. I was like, what the fuck is happening? This is incredible. And it was like 90 minutes, no intermission, way God intended. Fucking incredible. Oh, I saw scene partners with Diane Wiest, who, what a fucking gem. She's incredible. Yeah. It's the latest play by John J. Caswell Jr., who is the playwright who wrote Wet Brain that I gushed about several months yes. ago. Yeah. So if you ever have the opportunity to see one of his shows, that's like correctly produced, not like a high school thing. Uh, just because not to shit on high school productions, but they usually don't have money. At least mine didn't. So just because the productions... Like the visuals of it and the use of projections is just like, I've never seen anything like it. And it's so cool. And it's so different from everything else that I'd see. And it's fucking rad. And I'm I'm really here for it. And then last night, which might be part of the reason why my voice sounds like this. Uh, it's also uh, 1030 in the morning and I'm not a morning person. So that might be the other reason. Um, I saw Interpol, <gasps> which is one of my favorite bands of all time. They're great. How were they? I've never seen incredible. them live. They're, I've seen them like 10 times. They're amazing. That's amazing. Where'd you see them? At the Beacon. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. I love the Beacon. It was the first time that they were playing the Beacon. Did you work it or did you just go as an attendee? I went as an attendee. Good for you. Yeah. So I work like 100 jobs, but I will only work like a couple days a week at each. So then people are under the misconception that I'm off the other days. And it's like, no. I work every fucking day of my life. So one of my managers, whenever he sees me, because uh, I work at the Beacon as well, will be like, oh, is it the second coming of Christ? Monique is here. And it's like, bro, I've been here like eight times this month. Like, what the fuck? So I saw him yesterday. and He's like, he's like, oh, you don't come here to work. You just come here to hang out. Which like, incidentally, I haven't seen a concert at the Beacon in like two years. So it was fun. Like he like razzed me a little bit, but then I got like hooked up and that I didn't have to pay for any drinks. And it was just, the Beacon is such a beautiful theater. And it's one of those things that's been a really long time since I've actually been in the theater space when it's been lit up because I kind of like go through the stage door. When I go through the theater, it's like dark and people are like sound checking and then I just go to work. Yeah. It's such a beautiful theater. I love it so much. I don't think I've ever been. Girl, you gotta. You gotta. It's so, it's so great. It's beautiful. And it's like a nice size. It's like 2,500 seat okay. capacity. I feel like I've hit like all the other main theaters in oh, New you York gotta. for like musical performances. But that's one of the few I haven't. Like I've been to Webster Hall. I've been to Hammerstein Ballroom, MSG, obviously. Oh yeah. No, those don't have shit on the Beacon. Like the Beacon is one of those that 
um, because I went with a friend of mine to the show. And he was like, I thought, you know, he's like, I would have assumed that Interpol would have been playing like a bigger venue. And I'm like, no, they have. I've I've definitely seen them at like Terminal 5 and, you know, Festival. Like they were, they played Outside Lands this year. So I saw them there. I've seen it, I think, three times this year. But playing the Beacon is like one of those like career milestones. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. You're like, oh, I got to play the Beacon. It's just, it has like a very like old school theater, opulent, beautiful, like gold artwork on like the walls and column. It's just so beautiful. Okay. Like Hammerstein Ballroom-esque vibe or? I would put it, I would put it closer to King's Theater if you've been to in Brooklyn. I have not. Oh, it's really beautiful. It's King's Theater is like a much larger beacon. Damn, I have to check it out. I have to see what's, uh, what's playing there. I mean, I know that like Amy Poehler and Tina Fey are playing like uh, two weeks in February at the Beacon. I have I no idea if it's sold out. That. <laughs> I considered getting tickets to that. And then I was just like, saw the price and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I saw a bunch of shows and then, girl. What? If any of you have three hours to kill, I'm three quarters of the way through Escaping Twin Flames. Oh, I saw that on Netflix. Girl, what the fuck? Is it wild? It's fucking wild. It's like, it's the new cult. It's like another cult thing. Yeah. Love a cult. (laughs) Okay. Like, as everyone knows, I'm woo-woo as fuck. I believe in twin flames. I believe in soulmates. I believe in soul families. I think Amy and I are soulmates. I think I have multiple soulmates. So what these people teach is not that. It's so crazy and it's so dangerous. And it's really like there's no reality in which I I, like I was like, okay, like this is going to be like an MLM. Like people are going to like financially be like fucked, whatever. No, girl, it's so much worse. So there's this concept with Twin Flames of like divine masculine and divine feminine that just has to do with like energies, right? So you could be a woman and be a divine masculine, but that doesn't mean you're trans. It's just like your energy is more masculine. Okay. That's not what these people were fucking saying. Really? And they were making their members transition who were (gasps) not trans. Girl, it's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. Oh, my God. Yo, what? I cannot. Girl, this is fucking wild. Okay, I might have to set aside three hours of this. I did not realize it was at that level. That's insane. I mean, me fucking neither. Because what the fuck? And people went through with this, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Girl. As soon as that got brought up to me, I'd be like, I'm good. I'm actually going to just go home now. And we're going to be done with all of this. What the fuck? Girl, cults are wild. Cults are wild. And like I'd seen, I, it was a story I was following anyway because like. That's who you are as a person. And that's I love who, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a, the the love is one, love has one cult. Yes. So they have, they also have a doc on that. And, and I saw that. And it's like, I can see like getting into a cult because one, no one knows that they're getting into a cult. Right. Yeah. And I understand that there are things of like where you are in your life. There's a lot of factors. I'm very understanding to that. But after all the shit is said and done and this love is one documentary, these people are looking at me and my fucking eyeballs still believing this and being like, Hey, Robin Williams, 
his ghost is like talking through this fucking woman no. and like when girl i like could not i'm no. like no 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 absolutely not are you kidding me i cannot that's when you're like i'm gonna go out for cigarettes and just and never come back because like again it's a thing of like when the cult leader is like oh this is happening this is gonna happen xyz blah 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 and then it doesn't happen that's when you have, for lack of a better term, a come to Jesus moment. You're like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. Not, none of this happened. And then you're like, let's pivot. And then you're going to look me in my fucking eyeballs and be like, no, yeah, totally. Robin Williams is one of her spirit guides. I'm like, no. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Girl, I cannot. I cannot. So the Love is One, Love Has One, I think it's called, documentary is pretty upsetting. <laughs> it's really upsetting. But the escaping twin flames, I still have like 25 minutes to go. It's fucking bananas. And nothing of what they are really saying is like twin flame shit. And the people who are running it are top tier pieces of shit. Like the guy like literally says that he's like, oh, I'm Jesus. Like I saw a picture of me and I saw a picture of Jesus and it was the same dude. And I'm like, can you understand that jesus was not a white dude like is this the first time you're hearing this because like all of the depictions we know were from like european artists and they're like oh okay this is the same they're artist renderings yeah it was not a literal photograph of jesus fyi no girl it is wild set aside three fucking hours like it's insane oh shit i keep seeing the like preview for it because it obviously automatically plays on netflix when you're scrolling and i'm always very intrigued but i'm like girl jump into it it's fucking crazy okay fuck noted and it's just so sad because these are just people who are desperate for love i know it breaks my heart it does and i girl it's fucking bananas i hate seeing people being taken advantage of like this and just being like abused like this yeah fuck dude yeah you were the first person who told me about the concept of twin flames i was not familiar with this prior yeah but it's like i'm it's so bad it's so bad like and i was like oh that is not anything of what this is no what the fuck girl it's fucking nuts it's fucking nuts i like i was not prepared for how fucking crazy it was gonna be i was just like oh okay all right all right my brain is still buffering right now. I don't even know. <laughs> I didn't realize the level again. Oh, no. I mean, me neither, obviously. And I think it may still be running. The cult may still be running. Uh, what? Oh, my God. No. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, like I have like 25 minutes to go. So it might be like they wrap it up. The shit got shut down, but I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how a lot of cults are. Even when they're revealed to be what they are, they still... They still have some followers. It's wild. It's hard to completely eradicate a cult. I get that. You know, if we've learned nothing else doing this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is true. Yes. Any other big exciting news? Oh, I guess um, happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrates. By the time this comes out, it will have stopped being Hanukkah. So I'm sorry about that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to shout that out to anyone who celebrates happy hanukkah late i love it happy hanukkah <laughs> i saw a car last night that had a full menorah on the top of it and i was like fuck yeah fuck yeah <laughs> love that <laughs> fuck yeah oh you have uh reindeer antlers on your car i have a full menorah oh i saw a fucking green tesla with the reindeer antlers i'm like that's a choice sir yeah you know you live your truth do you this is for anybody <laughs> 
nope, makes me absolutely. giggle sometimes. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. <laughs> like that's. I'm not always a like, how does the nose stay on? <laughs> that's always my big question. How does it stay I don't know. Girl? Yeah, I always assume <laughs> if it's a girl, you can like get in behind like a twisty you can, tie? Like, twist twist tie it or like zip tie it or something but that's what I'm i don't assuming. know i've never put reindeer antlers at a rudolph nose on a vehicle oh my god that is so shocking because that's not me as a person <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh uh no but that's it for me awesome well on that note you have a spooky creepy paranormal story for me i do and it is the holiday season Oh, and as I definitely talked about last year when I saw Christmas Carol with Donna, as you may or may not know, ghost stories being told on Christmas Eve were a thing. Yeah. Before Halloween, before it was associated with Halloween, it was. Yeah, absolutely. This was the spookiest time of the year. Uh huh. So I'm going to get into all of that and the history of all that. So join me, will you? Yay, I love this. <laughs> so sources, Siotopost.com, bookriot.com, history.com, britannica.com, carnegiemnh.org, which is the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, Wikipedia, and I did read parts of a book. Ayo. I'm like Amy Traden. 30 Real Christmas Ghost Stories by MJ Wayland. While ghost stories as we know it have been associated with holidays like Halloween, how was it that they were associated with Christmas? So when Christianity entered the chat 2000 years ago, everyone up until then was basically living a cute pagan life full of parties and theater and celebrations. And the early Christians knew that they weren't going to get anyone to convert to Christianity if they were like, hey, you only got one God now and all the festivals <laughs> and partying and traditions have to go. No more fun. We're in No charge. more fun. Exactly. <laughs> they did that way later. So the early Christians rebranded these pagan traditions with most modern Christmas traditions being a mashup of many cultural and spiritual beliefs throughout time. The Celtic pagan holiday of Samhain takes place on or around November 1st. This day marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. On this day, Celtics believed that the veil between the realms of the living and the dead is thin enough for the spirits to cross over and visit their old homes. The Celts believed that with spirits usually comes some level of mischief. So to avoid the entities causing them any trouble and damaging their crops, on the day when the veil between this world and the next was the thinnest, Celtic priests, known as Druids, built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic gods. During the celebration, the Celts wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and attempted to tell each other's fortunes. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires, which they had extinguished earlier that evening, from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. By 43 CE, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of Celtic territory, in 380 CE, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. On May 13, 609 CE, Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honor of all the Christian martyrs, and the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day was established in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as martyrs, both known and unknown to the Church, 
and moved the feast day from May 13th to November 1st, creating All Saints Day. By the 9th century, Christianity and its influence had spread into Celtic lands, where it gradually blended with and supplanted other Celtic rites. In 1000 CE, the church named November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead. Christians celebrated All Souls Day with big bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels, and devils. Sound familiar? Which I absolutely did this growing up, going to school. For All Souls Day, you had to, you had to dress up as a saint. Absolutely did it. The church was obviously trying to rebrand and replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead with a similar church-sanctioned holiday. November 1st, All Saints Day, was a celebration of the most holy and hallowed among us. So the day was also called All Hallows or All Hallows Day. So the night before, which was often traditionally the night of Samhain in the Celtic religion, started being referred to as All Hallows Eve and eventually Halloween. A few weeks later comes the Germanic pagan holiday of Yule. Although it's traditionally associated with the winter solstice, Yule's original meaning has been lost to time. However, there is evidence to suggest that it was a festival for the dead, and like Samhain, also a day where the spirits of those who had passed could return. Yule comes on the shortest day of the year, which meant only a few short hours of daylight, even less so depending on how close you are to the Arctic Circle. Longer nights mean less light to work by, which means more time spent indoors, which means an increased need for entertainment. And the reality is, humans haven't changed much biologically in the last several thousand years. As cave paintings dating back more than 64,000 years show, humans are a storytelling animal. So it's no surprise that on the longest night of the year, on a day that was believed that ghosts and spirits roamed the earth, people gathered by a Yule log and told ghost stories to pass the time, ward off the darkness, and celebrate the rebirth of the sun. The Yule Christmas rebrand appears to have come in the 10th century, when King Hakon Haraldsson of Norway became Christian after a visit to England. Upon returning to Norway, he put into law that Yule should be celebrated at the same time as Christmas. Everyone was required to have ale from a measure of grain and keep the holiday while the ale lasted or else be subjected to a fine, which is pretty great. That's amazing. You're like, you need to fucking drink on this day. If not, we're going to fine you. Love it. Twist my arm. Okay. Exactly. While the date may have changed, the tradition of telling ghost stories at Yule, now Christmas, remained. And let me tell you, some of these stories are fucking crazy. Scandinavian stories told of revenants or risen corpses who would terrorize their former communities. Ghost story historian, which I fucking want that job. How do you get that job? Right? That job sounds amazing. John Koneko James noted one old Scandinavian story where a man is forced to burn his wife's corpse along with the bodies of several other neighbors after they go mad, die, and come back to undead life in the days after Christmas. In another, a cruel shepherd dies of exposure and later returns to his post, murdering the man who takes his place and, quote, literally frightening his former employer's daughter to death, end quote, on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is incredible. Oh, my God. The practice of telling ghost stories made it across Europe with a popular British Christmas ghost story involving a baker who rises from the dead and, quote, tries to lie with his wife, end quote, 
Oh. Merry fucking Christmas. Yikes. Weird. Yeah. I mean, the Brits are a horny bunch. You know? <laughs> Even after death, apparently. I guess so. All right. For hundreds of years, the tradition of telling a macabre Christmas story, also known as a winter's tale, existed in Europe, which can also be seen in the works of Joseph Glanville, Christopher Marlowe, and William Shakespeare, all of which have several references to the term winter's tale being used to describe a story relating to ghosts and the macabre, with even Billy Shakes naming one of his plays a winter's tale. This tradition lasted for several hundred years until Oliver Cromwell, Puritan, political military leader, for all intents and purposes, ruthless dictator, and all-around piece of shit, created an ordinance in 1644 banning the celebrating of Christmas for 20 years. What? Girl, I had no fucking clue. Because he was like, I see this pagan shit. Like, no, we're going to fucking ban that shit. Whereas you have like the Norwegian kings, like, if you don't celebrate, I'm going to fucking fine your ass. <laughs> like, Oliver Cromwell's like, if you celebrate in any capacity, I'm going to find the fuck out of you and I'm going to arrest you for 20 fucking years. Shops were to remain open. Soldiers would patrol the streets and seize any food being prepared for a feast on those days. It was even illegal to sing on December 25th. What the fuck? Girl, I know. What the fuck? What did Christmas do to you, Oliver? Fuck you. This is excessive. Relax. I know. Absolutely. If I want to sing, I will sing any goddamn day I want to. Thank you. That's goddamn right. You are not going to silence Mariah. It's always <laughs> Mariah season, even in 1644. <laughs> not only that. Seeing as how the United States was under British rule at the time, from 1659 to 1681, the Massachusetts Bay Colony also banned the celebration of Christmas, with the penalty being a five-shilling fine, or three days' wages for a skilled tradesman. While the holiday and its traditions made a resurgence during the Restoration in 1660 to 1688, the damage had been done. Along with reducing the importance of Catholic feast days during the Enlightenment, and the increased working hours of the Industrial Revolution, Christmas was viewed as a regular workday, and many Christmas traditions, including the telling of ghost stories on Christmas Eve, were abandoned. All of that abruptly changed on December 19, 1843. What do you think happened? I have no idea. I'm so bad at history. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. It was just like, what do you think brought Christmas and ghost stories back into, back into popularity? Charles Dickens? Yeah, bitch. Hey! The publication of Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol. He loves his fucking ghosts. He sure does. I thought it was a one-off. No, there are several novels where he has ghosts in them and yeah. that take place at Christmas also. He's got a theme. Themes on themes. I love it. Well, there had been a small resurgence of Christmas spirit and cheer taking place as a rebellious movement to the dehumanizing aspects of the Industrial Revolution, Charles Dickinson's story helped reinvigorate Christmas traditions with a focus on the more humanistic aspects of the holiday, global peace and forgiveness, familial love, and goodwill towards humanity through good works. While the tale of Ebenezer Scrooge didn't single-handedly save Christmas, it did boost the holiday's popularity during the Victorian period. Not only that, if you will remember, A Christmas Carol is a ghost story. Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by four ghosts throughout the novel because his old boss is also a fucking ghost to be like, oh, by the way, you're going to have three more of these throughout the, throughout the fucking night. 
And as I mentioned uh, last year, when I saw the live staging of it with Donna, it's actually fucking terrifying. Like, yeah. I didn't realize it. Like, you know, Muppet Christmas Carol, fucking love it. Doesn't scare me. But when I saw this live stage production, I was like, oh, this is actually like a fucking ghost story. Like, holy shit. Not the Muppet movie, but the other movies honestly kind of creep me out. I feel like I like watched it once. And then I was like, we don't need to watch this again. Like, I, I got the gist. Thanks. I don't know that. I'm certain I've seen it at some point, but really the only other than Muppet Christmas Carol, the only Christmas Carol that I really like version of it that I really Scrooge. see is Scrooged. Yeah. Which is super fucked up. But I was just like, that's the 80s, though. I didn't like attribute it <laughs> to like the story. <laughs> oh my God. Every time that the Tiny Tim character in Scrooge oh, says, God bless heart. his ever, I sob. I'm like, <laughs> literally breaks my heart. My God. There's another one, though, right? What's like the original Christmas? I know there's like a thousand of them, honestly, but like, there's like what's 27 the... adaptations of a Christmas Carol. I read the last number I got was 27 adaptations. Jesus. Yeah. It's popular, girl. I feel like I'm thinking of the one from 1984. Probably that one I feel like horrified me. I don't remember which one I've seen, but they creep me out. I mean, they should. That's kind of the goal. But I was like last year, years old when I was like, oh, fuck, this is actually like a ghost story. This is fucking terrifying. Not only that, the work breathed new life into the centuries old tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Their tradition was so popular by the end of the 19th century that in 1891, writer Jerome K. Jerome commented, quote, when five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood, end quote, which I'm like, okay, <laughs> if you say so. Like, sure. Okay. Don't threaten me with a good time, Jerome. Jerome K. Jerome, a name so nice, he named him twice, you know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a Christmas Carol revitalized the storytelling tradition well into the 20th century, when Christmas and the spirit world remained strongly linked in the minds of the public. According to M.J. Wayland, between 1800 and 1849, there were an impressive 24,000 mentions of ghosts in the press. However, after the publication of A Christmas Carol, between 1850 and 1899, there were over 161,000 mentions of ghosts in fucking publications. What? Girl. That's insane. It is. With Florence Kingsland writing in her book, The Book of Indoor and Outdoor Games, which was published in 1904, quote, The realm of spirits was always thought to be nearer to that of morals on Christmas than at any other time. End quote. Mambers Moore shared this sentiment five years earlier when he wrote, quote, The eve of Christmas indeed seems to be a favorite time for evil spirits of every unpleasant type, eager to do as much as they can before the holy day dawn. And for this reason, those who are superstitious will be wise to fling open their doors and windows so that any spirits that may have found their way into the house may be driven out. End quote. So in tradition that I feel should be brought back, I would like to share with you a real Christmas ghost story. <gasps> Yay! Circleville, Ohio, like the rest of the United States, was built on Native American land. Its name refers to the original layout of the town, which was laid out in a circle of a Hopewell tradition earthwork. 
In the dead center of the original circular town once stood a large mound surrounded by a series of earthworks. Earthworks are essentially land art. These works of art are usually of extremely large scale and made up of natural materials such as earth, rocks, water, and often involve reshaping the site's terrain by digging deep and moving large quantities of earth and rock. So I'm guessing it's something kind of similar to crop circles that they make lines and stuff in, in the earth. This earthwork measured 1,100 feet in diameter and was constructed in the early centuries of the Common Era. The mound at its center was around 15 feet high and 60 feet in diameter. In 1810, Circleville was founded by European-American colonizers, settlers, tomato, tomato, you know, whatever, who were relocating westward after the American Revolution. By 1827, the town had a population of 725 people and was made up of 102 individual houses, a private and public school, one church, nine stores, three pharmacies, three groceries, a market house, a jail, a government building, and a courthouse. And what's interesting about the courthouse is that it is in the dead center of town, aka on top of the mound, which historians believe that there was an altar on top of that mound. Not only that, when the townspeople excavated the mound in preparation for construction of the courthouse, what do you think they found, Amy? Bodies. Ding, ding, ding. They found several Native American artifacts and several burials with all the bodies positioned with their heads pointing towards the center of the mound. They never move the bodies. Amy, Circleville needs a courthouse and it needs to be right here. No. Girl, they don't give a fuck. I know, but they should because that's how you get your ass haunted. Girl, you know, <laughs> if Poltergeist has taught me nothing else other than it's an incredible movie, don't fuck with anyone's fucking bodies. My Seriously. God. Uh, Ugh. So Circleville got their courthouse, but by 1840, it appears that they may have gotten something else with many locals reporting hauntings, which they believed was directly tied to the destruction of the Native American burial site. Spoiler. Yeah, it, it totally is. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the sightings included a ghost who would appear every Christmas. One reporter wrote of a ghost who was seen standing on court and Main Street, but only at midnight on Christmas Eve. Oh. Girl, I don't know. I love it. I mean, kind of same. I don't know why Christmas. I don't know if it's just like... This is a really busy ghost. They have other shit to do. Maybe. They'll take off for a holiday, but like, that, <laughs> leave me be. Maybe that's what it is. These sightings continued until 1846 when the courthouse was rebuilt. And there have been no records of sightings since. Or have there? Cameron Jones lives in a house on Mound Street, one block away from the courthouse. And to say it's haunted is a wild understatement. The house which was built in the 1890s is among the oldest homes on the block. Within a few months of moving in, Cameron heard a strange noises, which he initially brushed off as the natural creaking and settling sounds of an old house. But one day, when he was downstairs with his mother, the two heard the distinct sound of loud footsteps walking across the hardwood floor coming from his upstairs bedroom. They heard steps walking from one side of the room to the other, occasionally stopping, then starting back up again. His mother asked him, who's upstairs? To which he had to unsettlingly inform her, no one. Oh, girl, I like can't. I'm like, get out of this fucking house, bro. 
there was one occasion where Cameron heard a loud thump coming again from his upstairs bedroom. When he went to check it out, he found that one of his 10-inch action figures had somehow gone from standing on the shelf that it had always been on to standing on the floor. It wasn't laying on the floor like it had fallen off the shelf, but it was standing on the floor like it had been placed there. Weird. Girl. And apparently whatever is in Cameron's house with him has a habit of moving things from shelves. Cameron wrote in SiotoPost.com that he regularly finds figurines turned around, which is really, I find just really unsettling. One day, his cell phone, which was laying flat on a table, suddenly flew off the table and landed on the floor. Cameron, shocked and in a bit of denial, picked it up and put it back on the table, only to have it fly back off a minute later. Like, I mean, priest party and this motherfucker so hard. Seriously. Like, so hard. Cameron also reported seeing a small dark shape out of the corner of his eye, which is sometimes preceded by a knock or a bang. However, when he turns to look, there's nothing there. The lights are known to turn on and off by themselves, but Cameron hears so many strange knocks and bangs throughout the house that he hardly notices them anymore. That is, of course, until Christmas rolls around. He said, quote, the activity always picks up and reaches a peak around the holidays, end quote, which I'm like, all of this that I just said before is plenty. I don't need any more yeah. than what's already happening. We're good. My cup runneth over. <laughs> Literally. One Christmas, three ornaments flew off his Christmas tree at once, landing halfway across the room. A few nights later, while in the upstairs hallway, he heard his name being called from downstairs, something he claims his dogs heard also. But because no one else was in the house, the dogs ran downstairs to see who it was. And of course, no one was there. Last Christmas, Cameron went downstairs to find the vacuum cleaner on and running all by itself. No. No. Although, are they moving it around Cleaning? and actually vacuuming? Because then, yeah, by all means, keep it up. Thanks. <laughs> if it's just sitting there, no, get the fuck out. But Amy, I'm obsessed with you because I had the exact same thought. I'm like, I would love a ghost to fucking vacuum my apartment. <laughs> right? Come home, all the dishes are done. Like, thank you. And like, try and get all the glitter that is still like I find <laughs> everywhere from my fucking birthday outfit from two fucking months ago. If a ghost wants to take care of that for me, work. Love that. Thank you. <laughs> the ghost Roomba. I'm in. <laughs> exactly. Another night, he woke up to a beeping sound coming from the kitchen downstairs that seemed to repeat every 10 to 15 seconds. When he finally got up to investigate, he found his freezer door, which is not easy to open, wide open, and the beeping noise was its alarm indicating that it was open and needed to be closed to avoid food spoilage. While during the rest of the year, items have a tendency to move on their own or get knocked off of shelves, during the holidays, Items seem to disappear and then reappear. Three times during the week of the 25th, Cameron's jeans went missing. Each time he had gone to grab his pair of jeans off of his pile of folded laundry, they were gone. Cameron was certain that he had left his jeans folded on top of his laundry, but they were nowhere to be found. After checking his laundry room, then searching the entire house, each time, Cameron came back empty-handed. And each time he went back to his pile of clothes, Cameron found his jeans neatly folded on top of his pile of laundry, exactly where he had left them, which that's annoying. 
don't move my shit and then like put it back make me feel crazy but again they're folding the clothes like i think that it, he folded it and then they like, oh. moved it and then brought it back but I, because initially when i read this i'm like are they doing his fucking laundry too they're I'm like, vacuuming Can I move to this house? right <laughs> my god amazing this is the best haunting ever <laughs> right i just have to deal with them like throwing shit like my phone that's fine i throw my phone sometimes too it's okay <laughs> that's good one night shortly before christmas Cameron's mother woke up to find that her Alexa in her bathroom was playing Christmas music. And reminder, these devices only respond to a person's voice, aka Alexa heard a request to start playing Christmas music and did it. Freaked out, Cameron's mother got up, turned off the music, and went back to bed. As soon as she laid back down, the Christmas music started again. No. Mm -mm. See, that's where I'm like, mm. Okay, no, I'm out. Although I'm kind of impressed that these ghosts are like technologically savvy. Oh, I know. Girl, I barely know how to use any of that shit. Right? Like, for real. If you're out with that anecdote, you're definitely going to be out with this next one. Then there was a time a few years earlier, Cameron bought a bunch of children's toys to give to his nephew for the newborn's first Christmas. Cameron wrapped the toys and placed them under the tree. On more than one occasion, the toys turned on by themselves while still wrapped in their wrapping paper nope. and started moving, singing, and playing music. Again, nope. on their own while still wrapped in wrapping paper. Absolutely not. Hard pass. No, burn it down. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Loud screeches and yelling that Cameron says will make your blood run cold can be heard echoing throughout the house during the holiday season. And try as he might, he can never find an explanation for them. Seeing as how Cameron lives one block away from the courthouse where a Native American burial ground was desecrated and excavated to build a courthouse, not to mention the rest of the town was built over the earthworks that surrounded the mound, a.k.a. Cameron's house, is it possible that whoever the apparition that had been seen standing on the corner of Court and Main Street every Christmas Eve at midnight all those years ago is the same entity getting extra rowdy in Cameron's house during the same holiday? We can't know for sure, but it seems like Cameron has no intention of moving anytime soon. And that is the history of telling ghost stories at Christmas and a true real-life Christmas ghost story. I loved that so much. And Cameron, you are far braver than I am. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. Dude? No, I'm like, oh, no. No. I'm like, no, I'm out. Like, day three, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. I was here for the vacuuming, but I'm out yeah. for everything else. Literally everything else. Yeah, totally. Burned down. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I'm so thank you. I love a Christmas. I love a theme. One. Yeah. Two. I extra love a Christmas theme story. That was great. Yeah, and I I love a history. I'm a history hoe. So thanks for <laughs> going on that journey from with me. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> God, yes, amazing. I mean, same. I can't believe they banned Christmas for twenty years. That was insane. What the fuck? I will never get over this. No, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. So thanks for going on that historical journey with me because I knew like three percent of all of that. Thank you for taking us on that historical journey. That was amazing. It was my pleasure. I loved it. Thank you. <laughs> and now I'm like so sorry to tell you my story because it's just gonna ruin the mood. Oh, I mean, it's disturbing December. It is. I, I know 
Amy Traden's bringing it. I fucking know. I know you, bitch. You threw down the gauntlet, Monique. I did. Like, I know. And yeah. I picked it up. Shots fired. Because I'm not fucking around here. <laughs> so that's why I adore you. One of a thousand reasons. So <laughs> I wish you guys could see Amy's face because she's like excited, but also like, I don't want to do this to you. <laughs> I have like the biggest smile on my face, but it's like slightly like manic and uncomfortable i feel like yes <laughs> it's amazing because i know where this is going hit me with it girl oh brace yourselves because it's about to get really bad it's extra fucked up i love it so yes again monique i'm blaming you for this a little bit because i accept the blame fully okay. wholeheartedly i regret nothing i mean i might change that by the end of this <laughs> You definitely might. Although now that she's accepting the blame, I feel really bad and I'm not blaming her anymore. I take it back. I could have picked a nice story. I could have been like, no, Monique did a scary one and I'm going to do a nice one for no. Christmas. I know you. I knew if I was going to throw down, you're going to not match me. You're going to outdo me. I don't want to say outdo you. Oh, absolutely. I'm certain you will. Let's do it. Let's go. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I do like to match uh, the other person's energy. That's what I'm about. Yeah. All right. So... Trigger warnings, because it's going to need... <laughs> All of them. Okay. Yeah. Sexual assaults, Oof. brief mentions of suicide, and cannibalism. Because Yay! it wouldn't be a fucked up story for me if there wasn't some cannibalism involved. Yeah. Let's be real. Of course. And it's been a minute since we've had some cannibalism. It's so been a minute. Thanks for bringing it back. You got to give the people time to, uh, <laughs> to, to recover from oh! that. Yeah. Oh! I love you, because I literally thought that, and I was like, don't say that, Amy. Don't <laughs> So I'm so happy you did on my behalf. You know, that happens so often with us that one of us will be like, don't say the thing. It's fucked up. And then the other one will say it. And it's like, fucking love you I'm so much. I'm so happy you said it because I was thinking it. <laughs> and then I was like, no, this is too far. I mean, probably. But we live life on the deep end, baby. <sighs> I love it. As long as you're there with me. Absolutely. Always and forever. <sighs> All right. Now that we've got trigger warnings out of the way. Sources. Murderpedia, New York Times, New York Post, Poughkeepsie Journal, The Associated Press, Medium.com, Casetext.com, TalkMurder.com, and the show Copycat Killers, which was completely unintentional to me getting a cat. I promise. I literally, <laughs> I picked this story and then realized there was an episode about it. And I was like, all right, well, fuck, I guess I have to watch the episode. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. It literally hit me like, probably like an hour after I found the episode too. And I was just like, oh, cats. Great. It's just uh, great. your life That's now. just my life now. I love it. I love it. Yes. So it's season two, episode 13 of the show Copycat Killers, which is, if you've never watched it, a ridiculous show. I don't think I have. The reenactments, the dramatic shit everyone says, the narrator, I can't. I love it. I love it so hard. I giggled multiple times despite how horrifying the story is just for the reenactments. I love it. So let's get into it. Albert Fentress was born in Brooklyn in 1941. He was the oldest of three children, and although his father was a no-nonsense man who believed in physically punishing his children when they misbehaved, that was not unusual for the time. I was just going to say, I'm like, that's kind of standard fare, no? Yeah. They're like, who doesn't? Right? I was going to say, it did not come off to me that he was physically abusive it was just like you do something wrong you get smacked you get your butt spanked whatever yeah so by all accounts albert had a normal childhood 
When he was 12 years old, his family moved to Long Island, where he continued his schooling and graduated in the top 10 of his class in his high school. He went on to earn his master's degrees in history and education, and after graduating, took a job as a history teacher at the local middle school in Poughkeepsie, New York, a town a little over two hours north of Manhattan. Albert was passionate about teaching and earned a reputation as one of the best educators at the school. He was engaging, entertaining, and dedicated, and there was nothing he wouldn't do to make history exciting for his students. He frequently dressed up as historical figures and taught class once wearing an actual Ku Klux Klan hood oh, to no, show the terror God. of the times, which I personally thought was a little too much, in my opinion. Like, one? You had to buy that. Why do you have that, bro? <laughs> right? Just like a, a side tangent that has nothing to do with anything. But I have several friends who make costumes, and <laughs> I knew someone who was working on the stage production and they had to make like the KKK outfits. Oh God. And they, so they had it like in their basement where there was like their sewing room. And then like something was like fucked up with like the plumbing. And so they had to call a plumber who was an African-American. And they're like, Oh my no. God, for the love of God, do not go in the fucking basement. Like do not go in the basement. It's, Cause this is going to be a really weird thing to like explain. Like I'm not in the KKK. I'm just hired by this local theater. to make this fucking <laughs> performance. I swear. <laughs> Yo, being in the arts is fucking wild. The shit you have to do is fucking nuts. Seriously. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. But where are you getting this, though? Yeah. Like, oof. I know. Like, I I see your point, but, like, (sighs) can we just use, like, a a picture? Yeah. No. That's a tough one. I thought it was questionable as well. I hope he at least, like, didn't show up to school in it. You know, like, he, like, at least changed, like, you know, in the, like, the teacher's break room or some shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can you imagine him driving around in his car in, like, the full – oh, my God. Stop. Stop. God. I'm dying. But, you know, he would dress up as Napoleon and, like, Civil Mm. War generals and shit like that as well. It wasn't just – he wasn't just the KKK. He's like, yes, finally. I can wear it out. Oh, my God. Albert lived alone and was a meticulous housekeeper. Although he lived on a meager teacher's salary, he appreciated the finer things in life and wanted to be seen as a man of style and refined taste. He was always immaculately dressed, drove a Cadillac, and wore a Rolex watch. In his free time, he collected stamps and had amassed a valuable collection. But Albert didn't have many friends outside of his work colleagues and lived as a bachelor. Although generally beloved as a teacher, not every student was a fan of his. The honor students thought he was cool and loved his style of teaching, but the non-honor students did not and would mock and make fun of him. Mm. And because he was a bachelor living alone who frequently dressed up in flamboyant costumes, they insinuated that he was gay, which in 1979, when the story takes place, was not as accepted as it is today. And in fact, was still considered illegal in New York at the time. Yep. They dox the fuck out of you. Yep. It wasn't until the following year that New York decriminalized private consenting homosexual sexual conduct between adults. And it was clear that Albert was bothered by these rumors, since he openly identified as heterosexual to those around him and had previously been engaged to a woman. In response, he tried to portray a different persona and wanted to be seen as a man's man. Oh, God. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Fuck these high school kids. Like, fuck the fucking high school kids. I know. Fuck these people. That's the worst they're ever going to be. You're going to let these fucking pieces of shit, like 15-year-olds, like, running your life? Fuck them. Seriously. Do you. Don't be ashamed. I don't know how anyone's a teacher to, like, middle and high schoolers because they're the fucking worst. 
they're the worst. Thank you for your service. I'm not doing that shit. Fuck those people. I fuck, seriously <laughs> fuck those kids. Absolutely not. When people tell me that that's the grade they teach, I'm always like, "Are you okay? Oof. Like, oof. <laughs> do you want to talk about it? <laughs> like, what can I do for you?" For sure. The rumors about him eventually escalated to him being called a pedophile. <sighs> yes, which I'm not going to comment on at the time because we'll get to it later. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. Yep. At the start of the summer of 1979, the bullying against him by some of his students became more than just rumors. They had gay pornographic magazines delivered to his neighbor's home under his name and used weed killer to burn the homophobic slur fairy on his front lawn. Oh, my God. Yeah, kids are the worst. What the fuck? If they used, like, a quarter of the effort that they're doing to harass this man on their grades, they'd be fine. They'd be honor students. Yeah. Who liked him? Yeah. Oh, why are people the fucking worst? Just leave people alone. If you don't like them, just don't talk to them or interact with them. Just don't fuck with them. Just fucking go live your life. Yeah. Do you really have nothing better to do with your time? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's terrible. As the summer progressed, his house was egged, he received prank phone calls, and his tires were slashed. (gasps) Yeah. Which, because he suffered from OCD, was particularly upsetting to him. Bro, roll out of Poughkeepsie. There's a whole big wide world that's not Poughkeepsie. Right? Go to fucking, go to the village in New York City. Seriously. No one give a fuck. Seriously. Oh my God. Things culminated in May when he returned home to find his house broken into and his beloved stamp collection stolen. Oh my God. Feeling persecuted and having had enough, Albert went out and purchased a handgun the very next day. Although he didn't know which of his students were involved, he planned to stay hypervigilant and had every intention of using the gun to stop his bullies the next time they showed up. On the night of August 19th, shortly after Albert went to bed, he woke up to noises coming from his lawn. Immediately on the defense, because of the harassment he'd been subjected to, he grabbed his gun and rushed outside, ready to punish the trespassers. However, although he did find a teenage boy on his property, he didn't recognize him as one of his students. When Albert questioned him about who he was and what he was doing there, the boy said his name was Paul Masters and that he was running from the cops. 18-year-old Paul had been a star football player for Spackenkill High School in the neighboring district and had just graduated that spring. Earlier in the year, the quarterback of the Poughkeepsie High School football team had insulted one of Paul's teammates' girlfriend, causing a personal vendetta against the rival team. Determined to defend the girl's honor, Paul's team had arranged a time and a place to fight, and even though he'd already graduated, he was the type of person who would support his teammates no matter what. But it turns out that the police somehow got wind of the fight and showed up to stop it before it started. He and his teammates fled as soon as the cops arrived, and Paul's getaway had accidentally led him to Albert Fentress's yard. When Albert realized that Paul wasn't there to vandalize his house, and it was a mere coincidence that he'd stumbled into his yard, his attitude completely changed. He introduced himself and invited Paul in for a drink. And thinking it was the best way to avoid the cops, Paul took him up on his offer. When they went inside, Albert asked for Paul's ID to make sure he could legally drink, since the legal drinking age was 18 at the time. When Albert confirmed that he was in fact 18, he poured them both a drink. Some accounts said beer, others said vodka. The two then sat down and chatted while they waited for the police cars to leave the area. When the coast was clear, Albert offered to give the boy a ride home, knowing the district Paul lived in was quite a ways away. But he asked him if he would help him move some plywood in his basement before they left. 
since the man had helped him avoid the cops and he wanted to return the favor, Paul once again agreed. Once they were in the basement, however, Albert took out his gun and pointed it at Paul, and it became immediately clear to him that something was very wrong. What the fuck? Girl, this story is fucking wild. What the fuck? Okay, I take everything back. Fuck this guy. Yes. To be fair, the bullying was not cool. I don't support that. No. Yeah, don't do that. But like, after you hear what he's going to do, you're not going to feel any sort of sympathy for him. Absolutely not. Okay. How dare you make me care about you? Fuck you. I know. As I said to like every (laughs) guy I dated, how dare you? (laughs) Why'd you make me feel feelings for you, you piece of shit? Too real. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Enjoy the laughter while it's happening because it's not going to be funny from here on out. Yes. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm like, it's the laughter because I'm so uncomfortable and I hit the trauma. You see, two days before Paul arrived at Albert's house, the middle school teacher happened to catch a showing of the movie Deliverance, which was playing on (gasps) HBO at the time. No. Yep. On the off chance you're not familiar with the movie, Deliverance is an American thriller film produced and directed by John Borman, starring John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. There's a great episode about it on the What Went Wrong podcast, if you're interested. I just listened to it like a few days ago. Shit, they was insane. It was Girl. insane. They did like so many of those stunts themselves. It was bananas. They did all of them. Yes. Because they didn't have any fucking money. Yes. It's uh it it's a great episode. It really was. And the fucking the guy who wrote the book who also wrote the screenplay was like <laughs> fucking cuckoo bananas. He was insane and like a <laughs> raging alcoholic and just like <laughs> would not leave set, even though they tried to get him to leave multiple times. And then, like, after, like, when they'd be at the fucking, like, hotel bar, he wouldn't refer to, like, any of the actors by their real names. I had forgotten about that. And so, also, you're right. Yes, he called them all by their character's name. And he'd be like, no, my name's fucking Burt. I'm Burt Reynolds. Like, fuck you. Like, and they, like, wouldn't respond to him. And he'd be like, hey, yeah, like, why aren't you responding to me? He's like, because that's not my fucking name. <laughs> like, He's like, no, but you are that person. He's like, no, from, like, nine to five, I'm that person. It's, like, off hours. I'm fucking <laughs> Burt Reynolds now. Like, fuck you. <laughs> I clocked out. Thank you. <laughs> It's it's a great op- I mean, what went wrong is is just an amazing podcast, and it's a great great episode. I'm so glad you. I just listened to it. Listen oh, to I it, love it and and like the show. I knew you would. I love it. You know me. I love it. So the film follows four Atlanta businessmen who decide to take a canoeing trip in the remote northern Georgia wilderness, where they encounter a group of locals. The quote unquote city boys are rude to them, seeing them as uneducated and lesser than them, and in response, the locals are hostile in return. The four men canoe in pairs, and when they're separated, Ned Beatty and John Voight's characters are found by two mountain men in the woods. In the most notorious and memorable scene of the film, Ned Beatty's character is raped by one of the men who demands he, quote-unquote, squeal like a pig. A line which was improvised, if I remember correctly. Yeah, all of the, like, really iconic, horrifying lines were fucking improvised. By that actor. Amazing. Yes. Like, yes. tip of my cap to you, sir. Yeah, because I think he wasn't an actor because most no. of those people were locals. And it was like, like a friend of Burt Reynolds that he knew. He was he like, was I like, got a guy for you. He can't read and he's not an actor, <laughs> but he's perfect. <laughs> the, the making of Deliverance is wild. Wild. It's amazing. Oh, my God. So this happens while John Voight's character, who is tied to a tree and held at gunpoint, is forced to watch the assault. 
The scene ends when Burt Reynolds' character sneaks up and kills the rapist with his bow and arrow. The other man flees, and the four agree to bury the body and continue on as if nothing happened. As they try to head back to town, they're stalked by the man who fled, who kills Ronnie Cox's character. They eventually kill the other man and weigh down both his and their friend's bodies to ensure they're never found. When they finally return to town, they make up a cover story about their friend's death to avoid a double murder charge. Although the sheriff doesn't believe them, he has no evidence to arrest them and just tells them not to do this kind of thing again and to never come back. The movie debuted in theaters in 1972 and was an instant blockbuster. And in 2008, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote unquote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. After watching Deliverance, Albert, like most people, was shocked by the male rape scene. But it also awakened something inside him. He couldn't get the idea out of his head and became obsessed. The movie had captivated him so much that he immediately started to write his own script inspired by the film. He said it was like he entered a trance while he was writing it and had no recollection of working on it. When he came to and read what he had written, however, he was so disturbed by what he wrote that he immediately burned it. But he couldn't suddenly forget what he'd written and what it revealed about his repressed homosexuality. When Paul showed up at his house two days later, Albert realized that he was attracted to the handsome, athletic teen with high cheekbones, bright blue eyes, and thick brown hair, fashionably cut in the style of the day. According to Dr. Von Ornsteiner, a forensic psychologist, Albert was angry at Paul for awakening these repressed homosexual feelings and started to act out his script. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry to interject here. So this is clearly not a homosexual thing. This is a power thing. Because if he was like, oh, shit, I'm like actually gay, he could have met some other gay in Poughkeepsie and had a grand old time consensually. I mean, yes. Like, because it it seems to me like, because obviously in Deliverance, that is, you know, it's a rape scene. But I think he was like so titillated by it yeah. in a way okay. that he realized that he was actually attracted to men. It like wasn't sure. acceptable at the time, so he wasn't going to go out and seek the company of men. So he'd been in denial about this this whole time. But sure. really, he was attracted to men, and it was like finally—I don't want to say coming to fruition, but for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's the like I need to take this by force situation. Which... It is a power thing, one hundred percent. We'll get into it a little, for sure. But I'm just like, um, people have consensual homosexual sex all of the time without rape. Yes. <laughs> you know. Okay, continue. This is awful. It is awful. And it's going to get worse. I'm very sorry. I'm Again, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I love you. Albert said at that moment he went into a psychotic state, another trance, and claimed he wasn't conscious of his actions at the time. While holding Paul at gunpoint, Albert tied him to a post in his basement, just like John Boyd's character had been tied to a tree in the movie. And just like in Deliverance, Albert's attack on Paul was all about power, control, and male dominance. There you go. Yeah. But also, he is attracted to Paul and has not previously acknowledged that he is attracted to men. So. Sure. Paul didn't fight back, presumably because Albert had a gun. Once Paul was restrained, Albert pulled down his pants and began to perform oral sex on him. Albert expected him to be aroused by being tied up and receiving fellatio like in his script, but the reality was the complete opposite of his fantasy, and Paul didn't become aroused. 
yeah, obviously. I'm sorry, does he not understand what assault is? Like, he doesn't... Again, he claims that he is in a trance and not conscious of his actions in this moment. Like, this is an adult. Like, I understand that, like, now we have the internet, like, you know... I think he's 37 at this time. This is a 37-year-old man with okay, an 18-year-old no. child. Yes. No, you can't just be like, I'm going to assault this person. Like, why aren't you into it? Correct. Like, he's 37. Yeah. Again, it's going to I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. The amount that I'm apologizing, I feel like, is very telling for the rest of this story. Indicative of what, what we're in for? Yeah. Yeah. When Paul didn't become aroused, Albert became even angrier. And this pushed him even further into a dangerous mental territory. But Albert wasn't angry at himself. His anger was directed at Paul. Now, in the movie, power is regained through violence. Burt Reynolds' character kills his friend's violator with an arrow. Ergo, Albert also needed to regain his power through violence. Did he miss the point of the movie? Did he miss how that how that works? Yes. He took what he wanted from the movie. He Yes. Clearly. Fucking clearly. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Especially after what's going to happen next. I literally, this is the part where I add in the extra warning of like, if you're going to get squeamish or like squicked out by this, this is your tap out moment right fucking here. I'm so sorry. <sighs> Wanting to take out his anger on Paul, Albert grabbed a straight razor and began cutting off the boy's genitalia while Paul begged him to stop. Albert then stuck his finger in the wound and calmly said, quote, don't fight, just make it easier, end quote. Oh my God. I'm literally clutching my chest. Clutching <laughs> He's like holding onto the wall. The yeah. Soundproofing on my yep. wall. When I read this story, I was like, I, I just, my jaw was on the floor. I had never heard of this and I could not believe how fucking insane it was. How did Oxygen do a fucking episode on this? Girl. One, the reenactments are terrible. They obviously didn't show any of that. It's, you know. Sure, of course. And yes. there's a lot of euphemisms, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they love that. Yes. The most graphic of this information came from articles, not the show. Yeah, of course. Paul told him that he didn't have to do this, to which Albert responded, quote, I can't stop now. Don't you see that? End quote. When Albert was done with his mutilation, there was only one way in his mind to conclude this story, to destroy the thing that caused him so much pain and ensure that Paul wouldn't tell anyone his secret. He shot Paul once in the temple and walked back upstairs with his trophy. He then put a pan on the stove, added some vegetable oil, and sautéed the organs, which he then consumed on a plate of his finest china. Girl, I fucking know. I know. I I can't. I'm speechless. Like, yes. this is insane. Hence all of my apologies, again. I mean, thank you. But also, <laughs> just, it's more that any of these thoughts entered this person's head. I was like, yeah, let's... This is a good idea. And we'll do this, and yeah. we'll do this, and we'll do this. And, and it's like, at no point is there, like, there's not a little voice being like, hey, why don't we, like, pump the brakes a little bit? Like, maybe, like, let's put a pin in this and revisit this, like, in an, at another date. Yeah. Like, you were so horrified when you read the script that you burned it, but you did all of it and you weren't horrified by that somehow. Again, he claims he is in a trance and he has no conscious thought of what he's doing right now. I'm calling bullshit. Sorry. I think it's bullshit too, but I'm not a mental health professional. So I mean, literally same. Do with that information what you will. Come to your own conclusions. According to Von Ornsteiner, 
the cannibalism was Albert's way of keeping his homosexual attraction deep inside of him. Afterwards, Albert returned to the basement. However, he discovered that, shockingly, Paul was still alive. Don't get your hopes up because all he does is shoot him and kill him. Sure. Yep. Albert then went back upstairs and backed his car into the garage, intending to load Paul's body in the trunk to dispose of it. He also tried to clean up the blood on the basement floor. But Albert soon realized that getting rid of a body in real life is way more difficult than it is in the movies. Yes. Yes. And when he realized that it was going to be impossible to get rid of the evidence, it was like the switch flipped and he was jolted from his psychotic state. According to him, he suddenly woke up from a trance and became conscious that not only had something horrible happened, but that he'd done it. By this time, it was around 2 o'clock in the morning. At 2.12, Albert called his friend Wallace Schwartz. Wallace was the son of one of his colleagues and good friends, Enid Schwartz. Albert had taught him in the ninth grade and through the years had developed a personal friendship with him, independent of Enid. Wallace also just so happened to be a lawyer, though he was not a criminal lawyer and was technically not Albert's attorney. When Wallace answered the phone, Albert spoke in a low monotone and told him he was going to kill himself. Distraught but coherent, he then informed his friend that he had just killed someone, that a terrible thing had happened, which he could not square with God, and once again told him he was going to kill himself. Yeah, go for it. Right? After this? (laughs) I mean, go for it. I love you. I love that you're the same level of fucked up that I am. (laughs) It makes me so happy. Sounds good, bro. Right? Okay, bye. Click. (laughs) It's like you woke me up for this. No, you can totally handle this on your own. I'm going to go to bed. Back to bed. Fuck you. Yep. Trying to talk Albert down, Wallace said that suicide was not the answer and certainly wouldn't square him with God. He told him they needed to call the police instead. Albert didn't explicitly agree, but didn't argue against that plan, and only asked that Wallace call a mutual friend, Rabbi Zimmet, to come and wait for the police with him. Why he wanted it to be a rabbi specifically is unclear, since Albert and him didn't really know each other that well. They met like once at a wedding. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, and Albert wasn't Jewish. Can you imagine being that rabbi? Getting called at fucking- I don't fucking know you. Right? Two, you did this unspeakable thing and you just want me to fucking hang out with you and play Parcheesi while the cops show up? Like, what the fuck? Right? Also- What the fuck? At no point is Albert telling Wallace, like, the level. He just is like- Of course. I killed someone. I killed someone. A killing has happened. So they, like, he wasn't really sure if it was, like, self-defense or, like, what- Sure. So can you imagine, like, showing up to this dude's house- at like three o'clock in the morning to like console him or like counsel him or whatever. And then being like, you know what? I'm just actually going to peek in the basement real quick and like, see what's up. Maybe he's still alive. We don't know. And then looking and seeing that fucking scene. No, the trauma. And then like, I don't know if the rabbi like peeks in and then it's like, oh, I mean, I'm next, obviously. Right. I have seen it. I can't. Yeah. I'm super fucked. Like, oh my God, girl, I can't. I cannot. No. Regardless, Wallace told him he'd reach out to the rabbi and ended the call. At 2.40 a.m., after he hung up with Albert, Wallace called his mother Enid to enlist her help in calling the rabbi and arranging for him to go to Albert's house. Although Enid agreed, she said she was going to call Albert first to find out what the fuck was going on. Mm -hmm. Five minutes later, Enid hung up and called Albert to ask him what had happened. 
He told her that he had killed someone or maybe just that there had been a killing. Either way, Enid told him that they needed to call the police. Albert didn't disagree and once again only asked that Rabbi Zimmet be there to wait for the police with him. Enid assured him that she would call the rabbi for him. However, when she called him at his home, there was no answer. Worried that Albert would do something drastic if she told him that she couldn't get a hold of the rabbi, she decided to call the police instead to protect Albert from harming himself. So at 3.05 a.m., nearly an hour after Albert had first called Wallace and informed him that he killed someone, the authorities were finally notified of the murder. Like, granted, it's too late, but what if he had just been bleeding out and had not been fully dead? Like, an hour could have been the difference between life and death. Dude, don't call (sighs) your fucking mom. Call the goddamn cops. Yeah, absolutely. Ten minutes later, police arrived at Albert's house. The lights were on and the door was open. Officers walked in and found him seated next to an open window. He immediately told them to please come in and take the gun, which was sitting on the chair next to him. When police discovered the nightmarish scene in the basement, they immediately arrested Albert Fentress and charged him with the murder of 18-year-old Paul Masters. According to the authorities, Albert gave no statement when he was arrested, but under questioning, confessed to what he'd done and told them that scenes from the movie Deliverance had been playing in his head at the time. The Poughkeepsie community was absolutely horrified when the news broke that the man who'd taught many of their children and been so beloved by teachers and students alike had not only brutally murdered and mutilated a student, but also cannibalized parts of him. Unsurprisingly, the press dubbed him New York's very own Hannibal Lecter. During the trial the following year, Albert Fentress pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Shut the fuck up! Yeah, dude, he said he was in a psychotic state and he, like, had no conscious thought of anything he was doing. Girl, you are going to be infuriated. No, girl. Yeah. His lawyers, which did not include Wallace Schwartz for the record, said that at the time, Albert was suffering from a mental disease that rendered him incapable of understanding what he was doing was wrong. After receiving psychiatric evaluation, Albert was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and disassociative fugues. His lawyers claimed that the primary trigger of his psychosis was the movie Deliverance, which he'd watched for the first time two days prior to committing the murder. According to them, He was horrified by his own actions upon waking from his disassociative fugue and had resolved never to hurt anyone again. Prosecutors accepted his insanity plea, and because of this, Albert was not required to testify about the crime in court. I mean, for like the family, I guess it's kind of better. Yeah. Oh, my God. They don't have to like hear all the what the fuck that they did to (sighs) their son. Yeah. But still. Go fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Seriously. Don't blame us on Deliverance. Right? How many of us watched Deliverance and didn't do Everyone. this fucking shit? It's no, an amazing yeah, movie. Yes. Fuck off. <sighs> Ultimately, 38-year-old Albert Fentress was found not guilty by reason of insanity in the murder of 18-year-old Paul Masters. He was instead sent for treatment at a psychiatric hospital on Long Island, where Every two years, he's eligible to have his mental status reviewed to evaluate whether he's still mentally ill and or if he's considered dangerous. For the next 20 years, he remained institutionalized, but was described as a model patient without being medicated and suffered no more psychotic episodes. The only time he received antipsychotic medication was in jail prior to his trial. The therapists at the psychiatric facilities thought so highly of him 
that he was allowed to walk freely around the hospital grounds, which were not enclosed by a fence or barbed wire. I also read somewhere that he was allowed to go on like day trips, like supervised day trips out into society. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Because Ed Kemper fucking, you know, had his juvenile criminal record expunged when he murdered both of his fucking grandparents because he like went to a mental institution and, a, you know, a psychiatric facility and then learned all the shit. And they're like, oh, no, he wouldn't harm anyone. And then he got his therapist, you know, was like, oh, he's not a, he's not a threat to fucking society. Let him go fucking expunge his fucking record, his criminal record, while all the while Kemper had a fucking woman's head in the fucking trunk of his car. Yeah. No. No. Thank you. These are not one-offs. No. Even if it is, don't take the chance. No. Literally don't take the chance. Exactly. Hey, you know, Netflix exists. This guy can watch Deliverance whenever the fuck he wants and then be like, oh my God, I'm like back in a fugue state. No. Yes. No. Thank you. Agreed. In 1997, John Oldham, a New York psychiatry and behavioral sciences chairman and professor, was asked by the state to review Fentress's records and provide an opinion on Albert's mental state. Oldham was concerned that Fentress was not on medication and was unsure what could trigger another psychotic episode. Uh-huh. Yep, as you pointed out. Quote, if he couldn't handle kids slashing his screens and burning his lawn, then how could he possibly handle the likely public reaction to his release after he'd been demonized in the media as New York's own Hannibal Lecter, end quote. 10,000%. Thank you. Correct, John Oldman. You know. Yes. In 1999, Albert contested the decision by state judges to extend his detainment and claimed he was cured from the momentary insanity that caused him to murder and cannibalize Paul Masters. During Fentress's rehearing, Oldham testified as an expert witness of the state and believed Fentress suffered from malignant narcissism, was not a candidate for release, and was also still potentially dangerous. Yeah. However, his opinion was contrary to the ones presented by others within the same state agency. Despite Oldham's testimony, after deliberating for more than six hours over two days- Stop. No. Okay. This is going to sound really bad, and I'll spoil it a little bit here. They actually- do not release him after this. Okay, thank you. Because I like I can't handle it. I was like, I no, I can't handle the situation. Thank you. Thank you for spoiling it. I panicked too, and I did like so much extra research to make sure he wasn't out and free because it made it seem like he was. But as far as I can tell, he remains in a facility to this day. Spoilers. Sorry. But I feel like we needed that. Thank you. I needed that spoiler. Thank you. The six-person jury determined that while Albert Fentress was still mentally ill, he was no longer a danger to society and should be allowed to go free. And believe it or not, if he's ever released, he would not have to be registered as a sex offender because he committed the crime <laughs> before the state law on such notification yes. was enacted. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Insanity. Oh, my God. Honestly, for that fact alone, you he should not be released. No. When Paul Masters' father heard the news that his son's killer may be released, he said, quote, I wasn't angry with him, the DA, or the jury, or anyone involved in this. I'm angry with Mr. Fentress. He always seemed he was more interested in himself. I never heard him say he was sorry for what he did to my son. I think he's always just been sorry for himself. End quote. That's the fucking tea right there. Yep. That's fucking it. Yep. Seriously, bro. Which, of course, you know, that is narcissistic personality disorder, like in a fucking nutshell. Yeah. You can say you were sorry once. No? Really? 
Okay. And and I'm sorry, like when you're paroling people, isn't that like the A number one thing? It's like, it's like okay, right? are they a danger to society? Are they likely to reoffend? And it's like, have they showed remorse for their crime? Those are like really important things. Yeah. It's not over yet, Monique. Just you wait. <sighs> oh my God. I can't handle this. Oh my God. Fortunately, despite the jury's verdict, Fentress was not released at that time, and state Supreme Court Judge Harry Seidel set aside that verdict. Now, it's reasonable to assume that after more than 20 years of therapy, anything Albert had kept buried inside, he would have revealed in a supportive environment. However, in 2002, when discussions about his possible release once again came up, two men came forward and said that when they'd been children, Fentress had molested them, something that Albert had never mentioned in any of his prior therapy sessions. Yep. I just burn it down. Fuck them. I like can't. I just, uh, uh, one, not surprised, obviously. You blame that on Deliverance too, that you did that? Sure, the movie didn't, wasn't even made yet. Fuck you. Right? And again, he can't be registered as a sex offender because everything's fucking terrible. That's what makes it extra fucked up. Like, no, this man should never be released. No. Have these therapists ever seen, like, dealt with someone with narcissistic personality disorder? Like, I'm sorry. All of those people should have their fucking licenses revoked. <laughs> Fuck you, people. You suck at your job. Damn, Monique. I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, shots fired. Yeah. Fuck them. They're terrible at their job. Again, same type of bullshit. Ed Kemper had a girl's head in his fucking car. Yeah. And they're like, he's not a threat to society. Expunge his shit. They're very manipulative and convincing. Like, yeah, that's, that's the, the fucking jam. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> I cannot. Curtis St. John, now 46 years old, testified that Fentress sexually abused him when he was 10 years old. After his testimony, as well as the testimony of another former Poughkeepsie middle school student, Fentress was forced to admit for the first time under cross-examination that he had possibly molested two young boys in the months preceding his murder of Paul Masters. Although, once again, claimed he has no recollection of the attacks. Oh, okay. That's cute. Mm -hmm. Albert did say, quote, I pray there are no others, end quote. I can't. There is something so extra fucked up about saying that that I, like, my brain wants to explode. I can't. The rage. It's almost like a threat. Like, there are. Girl, I can't. I'm so sorry. Again, just everyone. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And just when I thought it like wouldn't get any worse, I was like, oh, no, it definitely got worse. Great. Great. I rescind every empathetic thing I said about this person. Yep. Fuck this person. Fuck this guy. Yep. Bullying is not cool, but this is not the fucking response. And then it's one of those things like they were like rumoring that he was a pedophile. It's like, yeah, cause maybe some kids were talking was. to other kids. And he actually – it was a pedophile. So – Fuck off. And that's that thing, because especially at that time, it was that thing of if you were gay, that was synonymous with being a pedophile. Yes. Which is so fucked up and horrifying and wrong, obviously. Obviously. So I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like, you know, that this is happening that's what to I this thought. person. And it's like, no, actually he is. And it's people like that fucking ruin it. You piece of shit. Who ruin it for the lovely gays just living their wonderful gay life. Thank you. I thought that too. Honestly, I hesitated at first to do the story literally just because of that fact. Because I was like, I yeah. hate that that is like a thing that is still to this day like gets thrown around and is 100% not true. 
it does happen in some cases. Of course. The flames on the side of my face are so severe. I know. I'm inflamed with you. I feel it. The judge added that Fentress had shown few signs of acknowledging that he was a pedophile and ruled that he be moved to a more secure facility indefinitely. In early April of 2014, when his release was once again being considered, because again, he's eligible every two years, Dutchess County Senior Assistant District Attorney Edward McLaughlin said, quote, It is our position, as well as the facility's position, that Mr. Fentress has not been cured and should not be trusted outside a secure facility, end quote. Uh-huh. As a result, another court order was issued to continue Fentress's detainment at the Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Center until 2016. Despite trying many times to be released, Albert has been confined to a psychiatric facility for the past 43 years, and fortunately, from what I can find, remains there to this day. Thank fuck. Yes. And I'm sure the whole time being like, deliverance made me do it. Like, how dare you? How dare you? Paul Masters was by all accounts a great kid with a bright future ahead of him. Unfortunately, he just ended up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And tragically, his life was cut short as a result. And that is the story of the murder of Paul Masters by the man known as New York's own Hannibal Lecter, Albert Fentress. Amy, I knew you were going to outdo it because that's just what you do. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) I know. I know. I don't know why I defer to like genital mutilation and cannibalism as my like go-to horrifying story plot point. Because it's up there. It's up there. Yes. I've had too many stories that have that that really make me question my sanity. I'm not going to lie. I'd say that the bigger thing is, why are there so many stories like that? That's also true. You know what I mean? Like, those should be like maybe one off, maybe like a one off. and be like, oh, my God, that was super fucked up. Like that one guy. And it's like, no, no, there's a lot of these. What's up with that? What's going on? Thank you for making me feel better about that. Absolutely. I adore you. I adore you. That story was insane. It was insane. Girl, you said it was disturbing December. You threw down the gauntlet. Boy, is it. Holy fuck. And I, I'm i here to meet you on your level. <laughs> I've been met and uh, usurped. The story uh, was horrifying. You did an amazing job. I'd never heard of this. Same, girl. Probably because it's so fucking horrifying. People are like, let's just like not talk about this. I know. But it's like in our backyard, basically. What the fuck? I dated a guy from Poughkeepsie for a bit. And I'm like, how? I'm like, does he know about this? How did you not mention this? You know me as a person. (laughs) Like, do you not know about this? Is this one of those things that's like very like, like we don't like talk about it because like, what the fuck? Maybe. I have no idea. I will in a completely unrelated, hopefully moment of levity here. I swear in the reenactments, the actor they picked to play this guy who once again is supposed to be born in Brooklyn and raised on Long Island has a very blatant southern accent and the first time he spoke i laughed so fucking hard i love a shitty reenactment i love it girl (laughs) i could understand having no accent but like a southern accent very different than a new york accent i mean yeah i have to watch this episode because i'm very curious as to how they aired it because there's has to be clearly like heavy editing uh regarding the content girl the level of drama in everyone's tone with literally everything they say 
is unreal. It's unreal. I love it. It was a very interesting show. It was I would not call it good yeah. necessarily, <laughs> but it was it was interesting. So wait, are they calling is this considered a copycat because of deliverance or because of yes. because of sounds of deliverance? I didn't realize I thought that the copycat killer show was going to be all about people who like copied other killers. It's all about people who copied murders from movies. Every episode is a different movie, which I'm weirdly, despite how much I like, couldn't get over the entire show, narrator, reenactments, everything. I kind of want to watch it for that because there were a bunch of fucking movies on there that I was like, what? Somebody murdered somebody based on this movie? Then they they probably have last week's story that I did, Jasmine Richardson. Natural Born Killers. There was a Natural Born Killers. Yes. It's probably them. Yep. Um, movies don't make people kill and assault people correct uh, i don't i can't believe that needs to be said but apparently it does because <laughs> here we are yes that was insane it was and horrifying you did an amazing job thank you i retract and regret every kind thing i said about this man fuck him i know i'm sorry i always feel like i'm leading um, people into a trap when i'm like <laughs> yeah i love that though because i do it too yeah <laughs> It's it's called come on this journey with me. I can edit out all the nice things you said about him, Monique. No worries. <laughs> no, don't. Okay. Don't. Because because everyone will be in the same boat of like, oh, he's just a nice a nice teacher. He's getting bullied. Nope. Getting bullied by awful kids, which is like, I mean, everyone. Yeah. And then I'm gonna pull the rug right out from under you. <sighs> Girl. Thank you so much for your story. Oh yeah. I needed that little palate cleanser before. Before we we jumped into it, yeah, this fucking shit show nightmare. Yeah, it was a horror escape from top to bottom, pretty much. Yes, and I love being a history hoe with you because that's amazing. Thank you. You're wonderful. I love it so much, and I like when I was researching this. I'm like, I love this so much. Yeah, I love learning about all this. <laughs> I love writing this. Oh my god, <laughs> just me in my apartment, pantsless, like. <laughs> Like a little gremlin on my laptop, like just tucked in on my on my club chair, being like, "I love everything about this." I love it, you (laughs) sexy little nerd, you. (laughs) I'm so into it. I love you so much. I love you. So let's bring back the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas or you know Hanukkah or whatever. I don't know, just at Yule Yule. for those who celebrate that as well, because I think that's fucking rad. Yeah, I want a ghost story every week. I mean, yeah. And I pretty much got one. I, I try to throw in some some aliens in there because I know you like it. I mean, I'll take an alien story every week too. You know me. Girl. <laughs> I adore you. I adore you. Thank you so much. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram, but I, you know, if you message me, I might... I just need to figure out this Instagram thing. But you can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot period Amy. You should follow the show on the gram. We're at another fucking horror podcast, and hopefully that will get resolved soon so you can see pictures of Amy's kitty. Oh, yeah. Burrito. 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 Says So cute. Every sixth episode, which I believe is next week, is a true listener tales episode. So if you have some wild ass shit, crazy personal stories, or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com. 
And if you haven't already, we would love it if you would leave us a review because the more reviews we get, the more exposure we get, then hopefully someday sooner rather than later, we can make this our full-time job. And Amy and I can just traumatize you with these awful stories of people who just are the fucking worst. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. Once again, <laughs> I still feel the need to say it a few more times. If you guys do a drinking game where every time Amy says, I'm so sorry, you're going to end up in the hospital. Oh, we'll say. I'm so sorry. You're going to be so drunk. <laughs> Guys, we're so obsessed with you. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.